This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey, so glad you're joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of the agriculture industry. Well, what is regenerative agriculture? Does it really live up to the claims of sequestering carbon and reversing the effects of climate change? And if that's true, how do we get people to care about that enough to actually pay for it so that if the producers were to incorporate regenerative practices, they actually get compensated to do so? And it's a sound business decision. We're going to look at exactly that here in this episode today. In fact, we have a guest on who probably was the first person to mention the term regenerative agriculture on this podcast. He was on the show back in episode 44. We have on the show Russ Concer. Back then in episode 44, he was talking about his company Standard Soil and specifically the positive effects on regenerative agriculture of adaptive multipatic grazing. In case you missed that first episode with Russ or your memory is not perfect two and a half plus years later, I understand. So let me give you a little bit of background on Russ. He's a 30-year veteran of the oil and gas industry in Houston, lives just outside of the Houston area. He's from a technical background, engineering and science. He's always been interested in new innovations that might lead to things like renewable energy. And he led a lot of efforts to find new innovations through his former employer in the oil and gas business. When he retired after a 30-year career, he thought he would go into working with newer ventures in renewable energy, but soon kind of stumbled upon the opportunities in agriculture. Now, a lot has changed in the two and a half plus years since Russ has been on the show. Regenerative is much more in the spotlight, and I wanted to talk to Russ about that just in and of itself of the evolution of regenerative agriculture and his thoughts on that. But also, Russ and his team have launched a brand new venture called Blue Nest Beef, and they're doing something very, very interesting. They are answering those questions I mentioned earlier about, okay, well, let's say that this regenerative agriculture stuff works and it's sequestering carbon and it really is our best hope or reversing the effects of climate change. How do we get anyone to care and how do we get producers compensated? Well, they have a way to maybe get started in that, and it involves bringing back grassland birds whose populations are down by nearly half in just the past 50 years years. They're working with the Audubon Society and their conservation ranching program to market beef direct to consumer. Very interesting stuff. Before we go into our interview with Russ, we do have a sponsor for this episode here today. So I want to thank Indigo Ag. Record bankruptcies and extreme weather. The two biggest threats facing farming today. But what if instead of trying to solve these issues separately, we asked how these issues could solve each other? Introducing Indigo Carbon, the first program that pays farmers to remove carbon from the air. Good news for farmers and for the planet. Visit indigoag.com grow to learn more. Indigo, from questions we grow. 
Thanks so much to Indigo Ag for sponsoring the Future of Agriculture podcast. Here's my interview with Russ Concer. He's going to start off by telling us the evolution he's gone through since when he was on the show two and a half years ago with Standard Soil to now launching Blue Nest Beef. Yeah, so Standard Soil is technically still there. When we started that, the focus was on scaling the impact of regenerative agriculture with the focus on grasslands and beef production. And we kind of wanted to stay away from the marketing distribution side just because we thought that was down the road. But we kind of stumbled into the process. We had worked with our friends at the National Audubon Society, been on and off over the past couple of years, and then kind of had a simultaneous aha moment when they were having some great success signing up farmers and ranchers to produce beef under protocols that were good for grassland birds and a recognition that the story of birds and bird conservation was more potentially easier to understand by more consumers as an entry point. You know, if I start talking to a consumer about, you know, what's a ton of carbon, it's, you know, eyes can glaze over, right? You know, geeks like me might like that. But, but if I can start the conversation with, hey, we're ranching in a way that regenerates bird habitat and tangibly brings back birds, and then also leads to a realization that the, the bird is a legitimate sensor of all the other good things that are going on in an ecosystem. Because why is the bird there? Because more grass is growing. There's more diversity in the grass. There's more f- food sources. There's better habitat. That, that food pyramid that's good for birds starts in healthy, carbon-rich soil. So I like the way some of my friends at Audubon say it, the birds are the treasure and the measure. Hmm. They're a legitimate conservation goal on the one hand, and they're also this legitimate sensor for broader ecological benefit. So the, the, the name change here to Blue Nest Beef is simply trying to anchor that concept, that insight from a beef that's good for birds into something that consumers might recognize, then becomes a doorway to become interested in our story. Excellent. And, and how do you tell that story to consumers? You know, if somebody asks you, what is Blue Nest Beef? What do you say? 100% grass-fed beef from Audubon certified bird-friendly land delivered direct to your door. So it's that last part of then wrapping it into a business model that has the convenience that consumers are now comfortable with of clicking on a button on their phone or on a desktop and then magically a box shows up at their doorstep is something that really was much less mature five years ago, but now is kind of every day, right? I mean, the FedEx and UPS trucks stay pretty busy in my neighborhood running up and down the road. So, being able to weave that together into a business model that has the convenience for consumers. And the other thing we really like about that direct-to-consumer relationship that's much harder if we're working through retail and restaurant is we can tell a story to consumers that they can engage in over time. So rather than just trying to tell your story in a label and a slogan, you can now engage consumers in a story that starts with birds and over time helps people get reconnected to their food system and the many benefits of how that food was produced on the broader ecology. You know, in a lot of ways, and Tim, you and your listeners probably have a great appreciation. As a society, most folks have become decoupled from food. They don't understand the dimensions of what it took to produce it, all the practical challenges therein. And we think in being a direct-to-consumer business, we can bring folks along in that story over time. You know, even though they live in cities thousands of miles away, they can feel like they're a part of our food system by being a part of this direct relationship where the food was produced. 
Absolutely. And, and you're approaching a, a soapbox I have been on here for about six months. And so some listeners are probably rolling their eyes right now. They're like, okay, here he goes on the direct-to-consumer piece. But I, I think the big change, and you're right, I mean, it's been years that the that the technology has been there, but the big change is in consumer behavior. So as consumers are, you know, are buying their their groceries shipped to their door anyway, then that, that that makes shelf space in a grocery store less and less relevant. And it opens up the door for this direct-to-consumer. And so I think it's a huge opportunity that more people in agriculture should explore, even if they maybe don't consider themselves, you know, a CSA type or a farmer's market type or close to an urban center. I think it's it's more more possible. So I want to get more into that. But before we do, I don't want to skip over the Audubon part because this is a really interesting approach, which is connecting with consumers over telling them that, that the beef they buy is not only high quality, but it is, you know, contributing to habitat restoration for wild birds. I, I know you, you're not here representing the Audubon Society, but maybe you could give us some background about how that program came about and what you had to do to become certified. Yeah, so the program came about through the independent realization by the National Audubon Society that grassland birds are some of the most endangered species. I'm sure some of your listeners will have noticed here just in September, there was a major report out of Cornell documenting the loss of bird species in every category in North America. And grassland birds had experienced the most loss, down 53% in total populations over the last 47 years. So roughly half bird populations in 50 years. And it doesn't take much imagination to extrapolate that trend and go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You know, this anecdotal story of the passenger pigeon and the long lost, you know, the the, uh, just a few species disappearing has, there's a real risk that that we lose the broader role that birds function in an ecosystem. So they had this recognition that this was a problem. And by looking at it more deeply, they came to the conclusion that, hey, if we're going to have an impact in that space, we got to work with the people who have their hands on the largest number of acres that are grasslands, and that's privately held ranch land. So they began thinking about how do we work with ranchers to implement grazing practices and ranch management practices that help bring back birds. And that's where Audubon Conservation Ranching came from. And in in general, the, the beauty here is that it's the same things, the same basic elements of grazing that help build soil carbon or help restore water infiltration capacity or just make more productivity for farms. So It's kind of like, you know, you do one thing and you achieve many things at the same time. And, you know, it's through that realization that, like I said, it became clear to us that that this concept of bird is both treasure and measure is is legitimate because I spent a lot of time, I'm still deeply involved in a lot of the science associated with regenerative agriculture. And it's really, really interesting and really, really compelling, but it's also really, really complicated and it's going to take a long time to play out. Hmm. Whereas I think if we can start with something that's achievable and meaningful, like bird populations, we can um, kind of get traction in the space, as, at least that's the idea. So Audubon had surveyed their own membership to see if there was an interest in beef that was doing good things for birds. There was. They rolled out a program to start signing up ranchers. And really, I guess it was in 2018, they were only up to about 400,000 acres by the time we said, hey, this is getting real. They're now up to 1.8 million acres subscribed and certified under the Audubon Conservation Ranching Program. Wow. And we said, well, that, that's enough to build a supply chain. It helps us achieve scale faster, right? Because back to our purpose, we want to help regenerate grassland systems rapidly. And if we can work with, you know, close to 2 million acres 
and engage consumers in a story that, that makes a lot of sense. The other part was a recognition that a really big asset that Audubon has that no one else has is a, a long-standing rep- reputation as a legitimate conservation brand. So Audubon is well-regarded. It's been around more than 100 years. It's recognized by people living in cities around the country as a meaningful organization that does good work. I've been really amazed and blown away. I've had the pleasure of being at their national convention now, several state and local chapter meetings. And what you find is a lot of really engaged people that care about birds and all the things that birds tell us about what an ecosystem is doing. So it's kind of this thing where we had this realization that Audubon kind of had already built two sides of the business, the supply side, and had at least a open opportunity on the customer side. And what was missing was someone in the middle to be able to pick up that beef, process that beef, deliver that beef. And that's where we came up with Blue Nest to basically be that business in the middle that then can start with Audubon. And you know we're, we're, we're not stopping there. We're already working with other conservation organizations to scale and replicate on the demand side with customers. So for example, we've already signed a relationship with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever to engage hunters who care about habitat. Yeah. In the system, early conversations with other conservation groups as well to, to engage their communities as well. So I, I think this kind of birds and bird habitat, it's certainly an easier story to tell than, you know, what's a ton of carbon. Um, and, and, and like I said, it's a legitimate goal as well. When we saw this report out of Cornell of 50% bird loss in less than 50 years, it's like, that's really tangible. A, a report out of Canada just this week was roughly two-thirds of birds lost just in the last couple of decades. Wow. So, you know, we just don't notice that, right? Especially grassland birds because they're so far from our cities, right? These are, you know, metal larks, right? Metal larks nest in the hoof prints of grazing animals. If the grass isn't there and the hoof print isn't there, the metal lark doesn't have a place to live. So, it's, it, I think it's a, a, a kind of a tip of an iceberg thing where you can start by uh, appreciating the wonder of the relationship between birds and ecosystems, and and then in time really appreciate that the birds really are telling us. I, I tell people they're 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 like the most ruthlessly objective judges, and they vote with their wings, right? So you know a bird can just up and move to better habitat when something good starts happening that increases the food source and the, the places to live. So. I think it's a legitimate thing and, and the challenge and opportunity for us now. I mean, literally with Blue Nest Beef, we just started shipping our first boxes last week. So we are literally just starting this business and we'll find out whether we can successfully engage in consumers who care about where their food comes from uh, using this story. And for the ranchers, you know, this 1.8 million acres that, that's mm-hmm. uh, now been certified, what, what did they have to do? H- how did they change their ranching practices and what did it take for them to become certified? So the, the Audubon protocols are pretty practical and, you know, not overly tenuous, but they're meaningful. So the ranchers have to comply with protocols in four categories, habitat management, forage and feeding, animal health and welfare, and environmental sustainability. And it's like you might expect in other protocols where there's kind of a beginning stage and then a stage you can grow to. Those protocols will they include things like you might expect. So the animals are fed never in confinement, there's no hormones and no antibiotics, limited use of pesticides. And and then the base protocols from Audubon actually do allow supplementation of grain feeding in non-confinement settings. And then what we do at Blue Nest, because we think the customers care about a fully grass-finished animal, is that we've layered on top of that 100% grass-fed standard. You know, if you remember, that's where 
my partners have all come from as uh, large players in in that sector, Todd Churchill and Alan Williams and Bill Godfrey, all some of the country's leading grass-fed beef pioneers. Um, and we layer that on top of that Audubon program. It's it's all from ranches in the USA. So this is a completely American program, but, it, but it's kept really simple. And then, so essentially, does what Blue Nest do come in and say, you know, find those, those ranchers that are the 1.8 million acres that are certified and say, hey, we, we will help you with your marketing. And so you become the marketing distribution arm for them, or do you actually partner with them on, on the ranching itself? Yeah, so a couple of things here. Really, it's simpler than that for the ranchers with respect to Blue Nest. We just become a customer of theirs. So we buy their beef and we process and market it under our label. And, but we can only do that if they've already been certified by Audubon to be following those protocols. The part that I skipped over in the protocol that's actually kind of foundational to it is within that habitat management category is each and every ranch has an Audubon person that comes out, visits the ranch, and writes a site-specific habitat management plan for that ranch. So it, you know, if a ranch is mostly dry land or if it's got some riparian areas, you and it's in, if it's in the Dakotas versus Texas, you know, what you do and how you do it to help grassland birds can be different. And, and so then they're each given like target species is saying, hey, you know, you can focus on bubblelinks and meadowlark and quail here. And another ranch over there might focus on mountain plovers. But whatever the case may be, it's going to have a site-specific habitat management plan. And then there's bird counts associated with that. So they're actually going to track that performance in time. But so once they've gone into that program and then they participate in that, it's all Audubon works with a third-party certifier called Food Alliance to execute that program. Then that means they're qualified to come into our supply chain. And then from our perspective, they have to meet this additional grass-fed standard, which for now we just certify ourselves. Importantly, because again, my partners here are all pioneers in this space. We personally inspect the herd and try to understand the animal genetics. Sometimes we'll go so far as to uh, do things like ultrasounding with ranchers that we're not familiar with. In the case of our first ranchers are all folks we know and love. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's been an easier start. You know, I imagine most of the ranchers you're working with, especially the ones that you've worked with for a long time, like you just mentioned, are doing this because they just feel like it's the right thing for, for their operation. For those that may be listening and may be skeptical, is there, you know, is there a business case here where the Audubon Society can say, hey, look, why don't you consider adopting some of these practices? And we really think that, you know, it'll add to the bottom line. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I think the the first tranche of ranchers are people that were already doing something pretty close to this. And so it was just a matter of making official what they had been doing for a while. Mm-hmm. But really fundamentally central in Blue Nest mission here is to make the right thing the easy thing and the profitable thing. So, you know, we're paying you know, substantial premiums even over other grass-fed protocols for our, the cattle and, you know, we just want, if we, if we do this right, people will do this because why would you not, if you can meet all these protocols, uh, you know, in your system and get a premium for your product where it just adds up to more dollars and cents. So that, that's really kind of fundamental in what we're doing. I tell people I came out of the renewable energy business where, you know, we got Texas to go soaring past California in terms of renewable energy production with wind turbines, the moment the farmers and ranchers started to appreciate that, hey, I can get money for renewable energy on my land. You know, it's just like an oil well that goes up instead of down. So I I think we want to do the same kind of thing here with beef production. If we can make sustainable regenerative beef just compelling because there's a compelling premium involved, 
And, and this is something we can really only do, frankly. It's kind of a complicated story because we have that direct-to-consumer relationship where we control the price point and we can predict the volumes and schedule things and stuff like that. That's very hard to do when you're just trying to push ribeyes and New York strips through grocery stores and all the, the middlemen involved in distribution, et cetera. So we're really you know, trying to create this viable business model that makes the right thing the easy thing and the profitable thing. Yeah. And then if you get to the point where you're really scaling and, and you think, boy, I, I really need, I need more Audubon certified ranchers out there. What, how long does that process take end to end? If you had to go out tomorrow and go, go create some new, uh, new ranchers. Well, right now, and they're still fairly early on. I've had friends, Bill Godfrey is part of our team, his own personal ranch in Oklahoma. It was about two months end to end. I think we can probably do it faster as we kind of all get up to speed. Audubon, because there's a habitat management plan required for any given ranch, that means someone has to put boots on the ground there. That means there's got to be staff in the region. So Audubon, probably really important for folks to understand that Audubon is covering all the costs of an operation of all the certification process, right? But that means they, they have to have budget and hire people and that costs money. And, uh, you know, ranching country is, of course, spread out. So you, you can't yet have certifiers in every town and village across America, maybe someday. But <laughs> right now, you, it often involves a day's drive and uh, to get that kind of stuff done. So, you know, it won't surprise me in time if that can happen a little, a little quicker than two months. But okay. What about on the grazing practices itself? We spoke a lot about on your, you know, when we had you on the show two years ago about the multi-paddock grazing and the positive effects that can have. Are, are ranchers in this program required to, to do the rotational grazing that way? Yeah, but I would say, so um, within that grazing system, it's always anchored in some form of rotational grazing, right? Which that's the, if you remember the whole idea and there was a wonderful little story in the Atlantic yesterday that came out about some folks monitoring the behavior of bison grazing in Yellowstone. And they saw that they grazed in a way that led to the growth of more grass right where they were. And that was surprising to them. But that's kind of the anchor concept of this whole thing is you mimic the way that bison graze by having dense herds that stayed close together, eat intensely, move frequently, and then come back you know, sometime later in the future, right? And that pulse dynamic of a rotation is is what makes the habitat regenerative. From the bird perspective, it's fairly easy for most people to appreciate that in a landscape, what you get is a, a structured mosaic. So you get some tall grasses, some short grasses, depending on when you've hit it at different seasons, you'll get some different species growing. So you get this wonderful diversity of habitat that's the foundation of bird habitat. Now, you don't have to be one of the things I like about the Audubon protocol here for getting folks into rotational grazing is they haven't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So, so there's a requirement that they're doing some form of rotational grazing, but you don't have to be Gabe Brown or, you know, Will Harris or some of our good friends that are, you know, really great grazers in, in doing something special to get there. You can start by just grazing in a way that does good things for birds. And then over time, I think, you know, we, our experiences, people see that, hey, by doing more, I get more and it works even better. So it's still based on the same principles. Yeah. Back to our last episode, you know, you were one of the first we had on the show that was really talking about regenerative agriculture. And in mm -hmm. the last two and a half years, it seems like, you know, it's what it's something that we've heard just relentlessly in, in a lot of different contexts. And I, I worry a little bit about 
you know, the, the term being misused a lot to where yeah. sort of sustainable kind of becomes meaningless. You know, what, what's your take on what's happened in regenerative agriculture? And, you know, for, for an agricultural audience like we have here, you know, what would you want them to know to try to sort through the marketing into, you know, what's really happening here? Yeah, well, first, I'm thankful for all the attention. If you remember, one of the other hats I wear is with the Grassfed Exchange, an organization I'm now chairman of, and it's a 501c3 focused on farmer-to-farmer education about regenerative grassland agriculture. We hold an annual conference, and this kind of attention is kind of bringing it into the limelight. People are flooding into events like into local workshops and meetings and so on the farmer side, I think, you know, the, the capacity is growing really well. The public attention has been pretty interesting. Some of it creates controversy, but I, I darn near fell out of my chair when I, I, I wasn't actually watching. But I, I started getting text messages during one of the Democratic debates when Tim Ryan mentioned regenerative agriculture and called out Gabe Brown and Ellen Williams on the stage. And I'm like, wow, I guess I guess we're here now, right? Somebody's paying attention, yes. <laughs> Somebody's paying attention. And then you've seen a number of people start to pay more attention to the space. And you know, I think it's a really apolitical issue and it's an issue that can unite us because, you know, everybody eats and everybody cares about the capacity of the planet to grow more, more food tomorrow than yesterday. And I, I, I think that that interest in regenerative agriculture in the language is really, really good. I also agree, though, that we're now we're entering a phase probably over the next couple of years where we're at risk of people, uh, you know, even if well-intended, you know, filling it with meaning that is off course. It's just another form of what we've been doing. And and that's why I'm eager to take something here like Blue Nest and show them, hey, we can get good food to your plate affordably in a way that does something really good for the environment just by working with the forces of nature. And especially if we do this right here where we can make it more prosperous for the farmers themselves. I mean, that's really where it all starts, right? So if it's just more profitable for farmers to produce beef regeneratively than it is degeneratively. And I don't know, that's, that's too harsh, you know, just in a way that increases your capacity to produce food more tomorrow than today. Yeah. Then guess what? We're going to get, you know, a better capacity to produce food tomorrow than today. So that's kind of the, the practical hat here, which is kind of the challenges on us to deliver on the promise now more than ever, because more and more people are watching. And if we don't show what's possible than other people who just want to greenwash or whitewash over something. And even if it's unintentional, we'll carry the story and we won't be any further down the right road. So Yeah. And I think what you just said there in in starting to say degenerate and then saying, well, that's too harsh because it's not really degenerate. That that captures a lot of what I hear out there from the ag community is like, well, for example, my farm's been in my family for 80 years. So, you know, we obviously are regenerative because every year we keep coming back and growing a bigger and bigger crop. And so I think that's one of the, the, the uphill battles that regenerative has is, okay, we're not saying that because we're calling this regenerative, we're calling everything else degenerative. We're saying it's quantitatively regenerating more. And so I think that's where that, the quantitative piece is really, really important. And I know, like you said, you're an engineer and a technologist and very scientifically minded. You know, looking at this, this Audubon certification, do we have the science that shows, look, if you do these practices, the birds will come back. And if the birds come back, it is a good indication that we are being regenerative in the soil organic matter sense of the word. Yeah, so we've got that kind of insight anecdotally. What we're now trying to do is put that together more systemically. It's not directly under the Audubon umbrella, but I'm a part of a a separate 
project being funded by the Foundation for Future Agriculture Research and McDonald's and some others that are looking at regenerative ranches versus conventional ranches in the southeastern United States. And we're measuring kind of everything we can think of measuring in the same places, including those companion sets of ranches and then reference natural areas. And that includes bird counts, soil carbon, water infiltration, even various social metrics on farmer well-being, et cetera, in that system, insects, grass species. We've even got some really interesting instrumentation that's measuring carbon and fluxes in and out of pastures. And so we're, we're really just starting to get that data together now. Audubon does have it as a priority to get that program going on their side. Right now, they've been focused on just the bird count stuff to get this program started. But I, but I happen to know that they've got high on their list here working out the procedures and protocols to start tracking the other environmental metrics, including carbon and water at the same time. You know, anecdotally, I have the benefit of, you know, setting my foot on regenerative ranches pretty frequently and the differences are quite significant and profound. But maybe I can safely say without giving away any secrets at this point, because it's all work in progress that's still got to go through peer review when we get it all done. But it is very impressive to see that the birds are actually telling us some of the bird counts, uh, populations, and diversities from these ranches are some of the most noticeably significantly different features in being able to tell the difference between regenerative and conventional ranches. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're building that. It's kind of like try, trying to put the tires on a moving bus, right? <laughs> yep. So we've, we've got anecdotal data and we're trying to systematize that more as, as we get going. So stay tuned. I mean, it's all encouraging. I think that road's going to be longer than most people would like. Um, but all the more reason why the opportunity to focus on something simple, okay, let's just get the birds thing right first, and then we'll figure out how to, you know, measure and track these other things better over time, because they're generally more expensive, they take time, and they're also really complicated to understand. It's just, uh, again, in, in an age where climate change is a really big issue, how many people truly have an understanding of what a ton of carbon is, right? So, but they can understand what a flock of sparrows looks like. So. I think that that kind of co-evolving the education and the science with the program is kind of the way we see that it needs to be done. Yeah. Russ, this is one reason I just love having you on the show and I really appreciate you coming back on because you're, you're very upfront between both anecdotally what you see by putting your boots on the ground and seeing it. And so, you know, right. you, know you know, you see it right. and what the science, you know, that, that the science you know, to, to be put forth with rigor takes time. And so I, I really, really appreciate that. How much critical mass does the Audubon Society need to really start to see the results? I mean, if I'm a 5,000 acre rancher and I decide I'm going to try this on 500 acres, you know, is that enough to make a difference or do I kind of need to adopt it and all my neighbors to, to adopt it in order to actually bring the birds back? Right now, the focus is just on individual ranches and they're Focus primarily is on ranches 500 acres and up. Uh, you know, an acre down here in coastal Texas is different than an acre in Montana. So it, it's not a hard and fast rule, but they're trying to not spread their resources too thin by including too many of the small ranches. And, and yes, once it gets rolling, then likely there'll be an increased emphasis on trying to stitch together properties in a region because habitat isn't, isn't confined to fence lines, right? So Separately, I have a friend, Jim Willis, here in Texas, Cat Springs, I started an organization called the Wet Wildlife Habitat Federation, focused on quail habitat 
restoration uh, with native grassland systems. And, and Jim has, it's, it's a fairly, it's like a 30 or 40 mile corridor, but you know, he, he's gone to ranchers and, you know, be- begged and borrowed to help create habitat so that he can have a contiguous quail habitat that even crosses I-10 down here <laughs> near, near me. And so, yeah, I think continuity uh, will be important. It's just not a priority in the near term until we get some critical mass going. So operationally, probably just clustering from a logistics perspective of getting, uh, so, so we're having some good success getting some folks on board here uh, near me in coastal Texas. If you can have the same Audubon team visit five ranches in a day and then borrow from what they learned at one ranch to speed up documentation and practice implementation in another ranch that just helps it be more efficient. But continuity of habitat across fence lines is not the priority right now. At least, I guess I've never really dug into it with the Audubon folks, but having worked with them for a while, but that certainly seems to be the case for now. So it's just not, that'll come. It's just not step one or two, probably for that matter. Okay. This is a bit of a tangent here, but I want to ask before before we run out of time, you'd mentioned, you know, some instruments that you're using to measure carbon. And mm-hmm. to, to me, that's the crux of this whole thing. If we really want to yep. sort through, you know, the wheat from the shaft of, of regenerative agriculture, we have to have a reliable way of measuring carbon. And that, that's the scale of, uh, that we measure sort of what is regenerative and what is less regenerative on. Um, are there any exciting companies or tools out there that you think are really leading the way in this field? I'm just kind of curious in general for regenerative agriculture. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of technologies bubbling. I'm not sure that any are necessarily inside spinouts yet. The, the technology that has me most excited is called an ecovariance technology, also known as flux towers. Think of it as a glorified weather station that has sensors that can quantify micro puffs of wind speed in all three dimensions. So you can get a full wind vector and then combined with that sensors for CO2, methane, and moisture. So literally what you're able to do is resolve all of the incoming and outgoing molecules going in and out of any ecosystem. And researchers have been using this for a couple of decades in rainforests and pastures, but more from an academic perspective, and they're generally pretty expensive to do it. But, but now that's becoming a bit more accessible and actually some, I'm plugged into some folks that are working on a technology that would help bring that down from a cost point that's, say, more than $100,000 a pop to, say, plus or minus $10,000 a pop. Oh, wow, yeah. And, and, if, and if we can get that kind of technology out into a pasture, I mean, literally what I'm able to do now with this technology is instead of waiting to measure carbon like three years from now and how much went into the soil, I can tell you how much carbon went into the soil yesterday before lunch. We, we literally can count carbon with such accuracy that we're learning things we didn't even know we didn't know about how ecosystems function. We combine that with uh, spectral radiation sensors for incoming and outgoing solar energy, and you basically get a total mass and energy balance of a pasture this to me is kind of the holy grail of regenerative ranching because what these ranchers are really doing is they're managing their farms, whether they're growing crops or in our case, producing beef. They're, they're trying to do it in a way that increases the capacity of an ecosystem to catch more sunshine and growing life. And with this eddy covariance technology, we'll be able to start to understand, well, what is it about what we're doing that's enabling that life to grow more? I mean, right now we know that, hey, if we graze in a way that improves soil health, better soil grows more grass. And, and we kind of got these rules of thumb and these principles like mimicking the bison. But, you know, we're pretty early on in terms of understanding what's really going on in that process. I, I 
soil is kind of like the dark matter of planet Earth, right? <laughs> it talks about dark matter in a cosmological context. Literally and figuratively, yes. Yeah. Literally and figuratively, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. That, you know, we really appreciate that it's the microbiology in soil that is kind of the magic that's happening, and it's the interaction of that microbiology with plant roots that drives this system. And what we're doing above the ground either helps or hurts that, but with, with technology like this eddy covariance technology, we can start to quantify it now. I mean, really putting hard numbers on it. And even, you know, you can certainly, it's kind of fun, like this spring with our setup on a ranch in southern Mississippi is a part of this research project that I mentioned earlier. You know, you watch the sun come back to the northern hemisphere, you, you literally watch the grass grow, right? Every day I would like, just, it was, it's, it's, it's funny, right? Watching the grass grow is kind of that thing for, a way of saying I'm just relaxing. In yeah. in this case, it's like it's it's like watching a baseball game. It's maybe stat cast for <laughs> for for pastures and farming. And we're excited about what that might do because not only will it help us document these things in a much more time and cost efficient manner, but it's going to help us understand what practices that we're doing that that are really making the difference, so that we can replicate and scale them. So. The, the way, you know, again, you know that I come from this deep background in science and technology, leading bleeding edge research at a company like Shell. And I think the difference with technology here is that we're using the technology to observe and understand nature instead of trying to replace it, right? So instead of trying to invent a, a genetically engineered plant or some magic ingredient that didn't exist in nature, we're, we're trying to use technology to monitor and track what's going on so we can understand it and then do more of it. So, you know, the SETI covariance fits in that technology. There's, there's people working on various handheld or small soil sensors to simplify what we otherwise do in a lab. I think there'll be a lot of opportunity in remote sensing, both from, say, drone air platforms and satellites and, you know, the whole precision ag thing, I, I think definitely fits in this space. But the focus is not like, you know, where do I more efficiently spray my fertilizer, it's how do I understand what nature is trying to do so I can help her do more of it, right? If that makes sense. Yep, exactly. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you shared all of that because I think one pushback that, that this concept may receive is, boy, you know, that's just another person wanting us to take a step backwards and avoid mm -hmm. modern practices and modern technology, but really highlighting the fact that this is a, you know, the science is going to tell us what to do, but the problem is that we don't really have the science yet to tell us what's happening, you know, in the dark matter, in the soil and, and, and what the carbon cycle exactly looks like on a, you know, on a per acre basis, but as it becomes cheaper and more available, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. The whole science thing to me is foundational here. That The birds simplify the science so everybody can understand it. And I don't think we talked about it before, but I really think this kind of enabling growing life to capture more sunshine is the fundamental basis of a regenerative planet Earth. So, you know, we're going to learn a lot by farming that's going to apply more broadly to everything we do ecologically on the planet in time. And some of it will be big picture big picture stuff, you know, planetary thermodynamics and interface with climate and weather and all this kind of stuff. And some of it's small scale stuff. Like there was a, a paper out of Rutgers last year that kind of blew my mind about the relationship between what are called end endophytic microbes in soil and how they don't just bring nutrients to plants, but they actually migrate through the cell walls of plants, drop off their nutrients and then go back out and get more. You can just kind of imagine this symbiotic relationship between microbes and plant roots that's mind-blowing. In fact, they found that you know, specific bacterial species 
were co-matched with certain plant roots so the plants wouldn't germinate without those species present. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, that's probably just the tip of the iceberg, right? It, right. Like this, this, the science, I think here, as someone who's been motivated strongly by bleeding edge science for a very long time, this regenerative science to me is more fascinating than anything I've ever seen before. So if I were a young scientist today starting out, I would definitely look into the field of regenerative agriculture. There's so many interesting questions. Absolutely. Well, inevitably, whenever I do any episode that's perceived as pro-beef, I'm going to receive some feedback from from people saying, well, haven't you read the articles? Beef are ruining the planet. And we've already kind of touched on that. It's not the cow, it's the how sort of thing. Do we have empirical data that would show that raising beef in this way, regenerative way, or, you know, conservation in mind is better for the environment than just not having the beef at all? Yeah. And in fact, uh, since we last talked, Tim, there's a couple of things that have come out. There was a major paper from Michigan State last year by Paige Stanley and Jason Roundtree looking at the full greenhouse gas footprint of conventional beef versus grass-fed beef. And this was under controlled production circumstances on the Michigan State University Research Farm in Northern Michigan. And it showed what we had seen anecdotally before, which is even considering all the fluxes of methane and everything else that when done rightly in a way that builds soil carbon, you can create create a net sink in the process of creating beef. So not just beef that's less bad for the environment, but that's actively good, that's a net greenhouse gas sink. And then on the heels of that, that the research work isn't out yet, but some of the public data is. There was a private group called Quantus that, that worked with uh, White Oak Pastors in Georgia and came to the same conclusion in terms of documenting that the net greenhouse gas footprint of that beef was actually negative. So I, I, again, a net sink, that means it's taking greenhouse gases out of the air. And, and, and that's something that only regenerative agriculture can really do. So those are still anecdotal. You know, we had modeled our way into those kind of things from uh, work of Dr. Richard Teague here at Texas A&M University in the past. We probably talked about that before. And so we weren't surprised. And really, you know, we still have, you know, little, th- these are all individual farms and ranches scattered in different environments. So they're hardly comprehensive of you know, all farms and ecosystems in America, but they continue to fit with this observation that once you account for the capacity of soil to store carbon in organic matter, that you can end up with a farming system that, that is a positive benefit to the environment. And it's just, it's not the cow, it's the how thing. Like you said, it's this paradox that beef on the one hand can have an environmentally negative footprint if done one way, but it's one of the few things that we can produce in a way that actually creates an active good for the environment. And the magic is that how. So that's one of the things we like about the Audubon system is that it allows us to get you know traction on a how that kind of moves the needle in the right direction without feeling like we have to peg the needle all the way to perfection right away. And over time, if we can drag, drag sounds negative, but if we can attract, millions of acres into a production system that's doing good things for the environment and it's economically compelling because consumers are voting with their dollars to be a part of this system. And again, just like renewable energy, you know, my direct experience in energy was that coal didn't die because somebody passed a law against it, although many people pretended that they did. Renewable energy came on the market. It uh, went through a transitionary period as the technology got better and better. And now really the 
power markets are dominated by the intercompetition between solar, wind, and natural gas. And coal plants are just shuttered because they no longer make economic sense. So, you know, we, we, we think that that's possible with regenerative beef production, but, you know, we got to start kind of where renewable energy was 20 years ago with, a, 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 you know, early customers and early markets to kind of get the, get the ball rolling. Well, Russ Concer, CEO of Blue Nest Beef. Russ, I'll tell you, I, you know, when I first saw the, the change to Blue Nest, I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's a catchy brand. It's cute. I like it. And the more I got into this and understanding, you know, the, the, the science and just all of the layers here, I think it's such a fascinating story of where technology meets conservation, meets business and the direct-to-consumer angle. I'm really wishing you the best. If anybody listening wants to start buying some of this beef or at least check out where to do so, where do we send them, Russ? BlueNestBeef.com is the website. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search on Blue Nest Beef. Okay, I'll be following along and supporting and hopefully buying some beef here in the, in the very near future. So thank you, Russ, for being on the show. I really, really do appreciate this. Thanks, Tim. Always a pleasure. Thank you again to Russ Concert for being on the show, and thank you to you for listening. I think there was definitely some nuggets of wisdom in there, no matter which perspective you're coming at agriculture from. Certainly fascinating stuff, and I encourage you to go check out Blue Nest Beef. As always, I really appreciate those of you who've taken the time to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. I'll read a recent one now, although I can't read the name because it looks just like a mixture of consonants here, but uh, the title is Great Podcast. It says, just found your podcast about two weeks ago, already listened all the way up to podcast number 90. Wow. I'm finding it very helpful for me and has got me thinking on some other tracks other than the norm. Very cool. Uh, Greatly appreciate the people you interview and their insight. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for whoever left that rating review. Sorry, I can't read your name with all the consonants, but uh, really appreciate those of you who have done so. If you haven't yet, would love for you to just take the 30 seconds uh, on your podcast app, whichever one you use, rate us, review us, and I'd love to read it on a future episode. We'll be back next week with another fascinating ag innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.